praying that you would do your work this morning, that you would have your pleasure and do as you will. Lord, would you cause the soil, the gospel, spiritual soil in us uh, to be nourished and nurtured this morning. Remove uh, chaff and remove rocks and make the soil good to grow in us gospel uh, plants uh, that we would go forth as a light in this community and as witnesses for you uh, who are Christ-like and gentle in spirit. So we pray, Lord, come now and uh, attend your word by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I may have used this uh, story in times past in this pulpit, so forgive me if you have heard it before. It concerns the early church father Chrysostom. Chrysostom lived in the 4th century. Chrysostom became the Archbishop of Constantinople, and he was known as the Golden Mouth because of the excellence of his preaching. Well, one day, as Chrysostom was just wrapping up one of his fine sermons, the congregation broke out into wild applause. Chrysostom's reaction to that applause was to turn on the congregation and mock the applause. And then he proceeded to tell them that, in fact, they had no intent to take to heart what he'd been preaching. As William Willimon tells the story, Chrysostom, he says, derided the congregation as scoundrels unworthy of the gospel. And he announced that all applause would hereafter be forbidden in the church. And as soon as he made that announcement, it brought down the house with applause. (laughs) I've always found that to be a funny story. I think Chrysostom probably overreacted to his congregation that day. But nevertheless, friends... In his reaction that day, there is at least, I think, a kernel of correctness or a measure of appropriate concern. Friends, the the fact is that God doesn't want any of us to simply applaud sermons and preachers. God is not satisfied to have us simply uh, nod in agreement with what's preached from his word and then walk away without doing anything about it. Jesus stands aghast with us if we simply hear his Sermon on the Mount and praise the beauty and the power of its words while having no concern to implement the teaching or carry it out or live it out. And it's this danger of being hearers of the word only and not doers of the word. It's this danger of merely listening to the Sermon on the Mount, but not making it operative in our lives. That is the concern of Jesus in the next couple of verses of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as we prepare ourselves to walk through the corridors of this next portion of Jesus' sermon, I think it's worth pointing out that here in this section, Jesus stands in the long, venerable Jewish tradition 
that has been called the two ways tradition. The two ways tradition. The two ways tradition can be seen in a number of places in the Hebrew Bible, in the Bible that Jesus read, the Old Testament. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 11, verses 26 through 28, Yahweh, God of Israel, through Moses, sets two ways before his people. They had to choose between the way of blessing on one hand and the way of curse on the other hand. The way of blessing would come if and when they obeyed the commandments of Yahweh, but the way of curse would come if they disobeyed his commandments. There was no third way. There was no middle way that was presented to the people in Deuteronomy 11. It was either blessing or curse, and the people had to choose. Two ways. We find the two ways tradition also in Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 20. There, the choice is between the way of life and good or the way of death and evil. We also find the two ways tradition in Psalm 119, verses 29 and 30, where the choice is presented as false ways versus the ways of faithfulness or the way of faithfulness. We find the two ways tradition again in Jeremiah 21, verse 8, where the two ways are either life or death. And standing behind all of these Old Testament examples of the two ways tradition is the overarching question. How will a person respond to the Torah, to the law of God given through Moses? Obedience to Torah will mean life, blessing, and good. The way of disobedience will mean death curse, and evil. One must choose between two ways. There is no third way that is available. Well, in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus employs the two ways tradition. And here, the overarching question behind what he says is, how, and I want you to take this personally, how will you respond to the teaching that he has presented in the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount is now wrapping up. How will you respond to the teaching that he has given us in the Sermon on the Mount? Will you make it operative in your life? Will you actually implement what Jesus Christ has taught us in this sermon? Or will you disobey? Now, there is a real gravity about this. And I want us to understand that and see that. There is a rigor in what Jesus is calling us to decide on here. Some of us, as we go through this carefully, some of us might find Jesus to be rather unsavory here. Especially if we're the kind of person who likes to remain uncommitted. There's really no option here to remain uncommitted. You must choose one way 
or the other way. And if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. But let's go to the text. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, to read it again, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Well, we want to take these verses now slowly piece by piece, and with some reflection. The first word in this passage is that word, enter. Notice that. Enter by the narrow gate. In the original Greek, the word enter is in the second person plural, meaning you all enter. Everyone who is listening to Jesus speak is to Enter. And the word enter here is also a command. It's in the form of a command. And it is an urgent command. The command to enter calls for hasty and resolute action. None of us can afford to delay our entrance. The idea is enter now and not later. And what is it that we are to enter? Jesus says... Enter by the narrow gate. Now, interestingly enough, in John 10, verse 9, Jesus calls himself the door. And he says there in John 10, 9, that we are to enter by him. I'm inclined to think that here at Matthew 7.13, when Jesus commands us to enter by the narrow gate, that he is referring to himself and to his demanding kingdom teaching. The gate that we are to enter by is Jesus with obedience to his commands and his demands. And I don't think demands is too strong a word. We are to be radically committed to Jesus Christ and his teaching, in other words. And we notice here, notice this, it's very important, Jesus doesn't simply say, enter by the gate, right? He qualifies or he describes the gate. He says, enter by the narrow gate. Now, I am convinced, as we think through this, that the word narrow here in 7.13, bears a direct relationship to the body of teaching that Jesus has just given us in 5.17 of the Sermon on the Mount all the way up to 7.12. to 7.12 is the main body of teaching in this Sermon on the Mount, and that body of teaching, friends, has been demanding. Has it not? Have you felt uncomfortable in the Sermon on the Mount as we've gone through it? I certainly have. This is demanding teaching. In a real sense, what Jesus has taught us in the body of his sermon has been restrictive. 
It has imposed limitations on our lives. And he has commanded us hard things. Narrow. He has forced a choice, for example, between God and money. He has commanded that if we would enter the kingdom of heaven, it takes a whole person, heart-deep righteousness that exceeds the purely external righteousness of the Pharisees. He has demanded from us in his sermon that we not hit back when somebody injures us. That we love those who hate us. He has also talked about us being persecuted as Christians. And he has called for us in this sermon to refrain from being condemnatory toward others when we see their weaknesses and when we see their flaws. In sum... Jesus, in his sermon, has outlined the demanding nature of discipleship. And now at 7.13 and 14, he's calling us to make a decision to enter by the narrow, restrictive, confining way of life that he has just taught us with him walking before us on that narrow road. To enter by the narrow gate, in the words of John Stott, is to live within the confines of what God has revealed in Scripture to be true and good. Yes, the confines. To enter by the narrow gate is to make a break with the world in terms of our thinking, our doing, and our speaking because we follow Jesus. To enter by the narrow gate is to turn from sin and to crucify self. And to prepare ourselves that at times we may feel very alone in this fallen world. Enter by the narrow gate. And then Jesus says in verse 13, For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to what? Note that word. To destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Can you see the two ways that Jesus is presenting to us here? Option one, or way one, is the narrow gate. Option two, or option, or way two, I should say, is the wide gate with the roomy road. And by the way, roomy or even spacious, is probably a better translation of the Greek in verse 14 than easy, as the ESV has it. The gate is wide and the way is roomy or spacious. Jesus says to us today that these are the only two ways for human beings in this world. There is no third way. Concerning the second way, which is the wide gate with the roomy road that many are walking on, this is the life path, and I want you to listen carefully, this is the life path where a person takes himself or herself as autonomous. 
where we convince ourselves that we are simply free to do as we please and live as we want, ignoring even the possibility that God may have something to say about our lives. The wide gate with the roomy road describes the person who puts a high value on moral latitude without any checks. I can be as bitter or untruthful or as resentful or condemning as I want to be. I can be as materialistic or as sexually permissive as I want to be. After all, it's my life. The second way is the way of self-obsession. And it's the way of where it's the way where self-denial and where self-discipline are conspicuous, conspicuously lacking. In this second way, a person feels that he or she can be as uncommitted as necessary. Every opinion is right. There are no parameters around any conduct. We follow our hearts. We follow our inclinations. We follow our own desires. Well, friends, the eternal second person of the Godhead came from heaven to earth in the flesh to tell us here in unequivocal terms that this second way leads to destruction. It's right there in our verse. Be warned. Jesus is issuing a warning to us here. Charles Quarles sums things up, I think, very well when he writes this. The path of moral laxity is a dead-end road in the most frightening sense. He says, horrifying punishment is the destination to which the world insanely rushes. When Jesus uses this word destruction, here in Matthew 7.13, he's talking about eternal ruin, eternal punishment. Nobody in their right mind wants eternal punishment. In grace and in great mercy, Jesus holds before us the road map, doesn't he? With his Sermon on the Mount, the road map that allows us to avoid the second way with its awful result. The road map that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount, again, says Charles Quarles, the road map marks out the narrow path that leads to life In God's kingdom, Quarles says, those who ignore the map do so at their own peril. And so my question, friend, to you, and don't look at anybody else, ask yourself the question, am I living the road map that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount? Verse 14. Now Jesus comes back around to talk about the first way again. 
So we're back at the first way in verse 14. He says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard, or a better translation than hard here would be the word narrow again. So the gate is narrow and the way is narrow that leads to what? To life. And those who find it are few. So the question is, why bother to find the narrow, restrictive way and to enter it and to follow it? Why concern ourselves with living out the demands of Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount and being uncompromising in our commitment to him? Why bother? Well, because, friends, that first way, Though it may be hard, and though it may seem restrictive, and though it at times may feel very difficult, that first way, if we live it out for this little blip that is our fourscore and twenty years on this earth, and it's a little blip of our eternity. If we live it out, it is the way that leads to life. The wide and comfortable road is certainly attractive, isn't it? It's attractive in the immediate. I can live however I like and do whatever I want. But the surprise at the end of that road is terrifying. It is destruction. While the narrow way of Jesus Christ may indeed prove more difficult and confining in the immediate, but it is the way that leads to blessed eternal life. Two ways. There is no third. Which have you chosen? You are on one or the other, even as I preach this morning. And Jesus is calling you to get on the narrow road. But we must hasten on now to the next section of Jesus' sermon, which is verses 15 through 20. So notice now. Jesus moves us from the two ways of verses 13 and 14 now to two trees, verses 15 through 20. Let's look at this. He says in verse 15, beware. See how this passage is full of warning, right? Beware. In other words, be continually vigilant. Are you being continually vigilant? Be on your guard always. Concerning what? Concerning false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, right here, I think it's very important that I try to bring a caution. Sadly, there are those in churches these days who seem to think that God has appointed them to be heresy hunters. Heresy hunters are people who treat it as their God-appointed mission to go nitpicking in what's often a very ungracious way with every teacher of God's word that they can find, trying to expose what they feel is any slight deviation in these teachers from their own, oftentimes very lacking, understanding of God's Word. 
Here in Matthew 7.15, and we need to see this, Jesus is not giving the green light to such activity. He is in no way encouraging the practice of passionate, proactive, heresy hunting. Rather, Jesus is simply pointing out a reality in the church that over the course of the ages, there have been false teachers in the church and there still are today, and that as disciples we are to be aware of them, beware of them, and exercise discernment. Why? Because the truth of God's word is of such vital and paramount importance. Now in using this terminology of false prophets here in verse 15, Jesus is assuming, isn't he, that there is a standard by which to make a judgment as to whether a person is a false prophet. The standard is the truth that God has revealed in his word. Are you with me? The true prophet, the true teacher, will listen to God speak in God's word. The true prophet will stand in the counsel of the Lord and he will proclaim not his own ideas and visions, but rather he will proclaim only what the Lord says. The false prophet, on the other hand, can be described in the following ways. I'm going to give you a little portrait, however incomplete it may be, of the false prophet. And here I'm indebted, of course, to the many biblical passages that describe false prophets, And I'm also borrowing here from the careful comments of writers like John Stott, Charles Quarles, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dan Doriani, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So I offer you now a portrait, however incomplete, of the nature of a false prophet. First and foremost, of course, and I want you to look at our text in the Sermon on the Mount again, we have Jesus here in Matthew 7.15 describing the false prophet as a person who comes how? In sheep's clothing, but inwardly is a ravenous wolf. And with that description, what we learn is that the false prophet is deceptive, first of all. He is deceptive in that he disguises himself on the outside as a disciple of Jesus, as a sheep. But inside, he is really not a disciple. He is, in fact, a ravenous wolf. He is deceptive. And we also learn from this very same description that the false prophet is not only deceptive, he is also dangerous. After all, he is a ravenous wolf in reality, ready to devour actual disciples, ready to cause havoc and trouble amongst disciples. So the false prophet, first of all, is deceptive and he is also dangerous. Another thing to say about false prophets is that they have not been sent by God or appointed by God or authorized by God to teach and prophesy as they do. Jeremiah 14, verses 14 and 15, emphasize that false prophets have not been sent by God as they do their prophesying and their teaching. And Ezekiel 13, 6, 
confirms the same point. And we know from 1 Corinthians 12.28 that it is God who must appoint prophets. So again, false prophets in the church have not been sent by God to prophesy and to teach. They may claim to speak for God, or they may presume to speak for God, but in reality, they do not. Further, and this is very important, especially in our contemporary world, false prophets, I want you to listen, tend to fill people with vain hopes. Jeremiah 23.16 They speak peace when there is no peace. Jeremiah 6, verses 13 and 14. Jeremiah 8.11. Ezekiel 13.10 False prophets tend to make people feel cozy and sleepy about their true condition. And they tend to encourage complacency. And their teaching is characterized by undue amounts of uplift. When the reality is that people should be heeding divine warnings and facing eternal dangers and waking up before they die. False prophets tend to communicate an overwrought optimism. Their message is, according to Jeremiah 23.17, their message is, it shall be well with you, and no disaster shall come upon you. When the reality is, friends, that as fallen human beings, and I want you to listen carefully, as fallen human beings, we are under the wrath of Almighty God unless we are found safe in a Redeemer named Jesus Christ. As Martin Lloyd-Jones has put it, the false prophet is a very comforting preacher. As you listen to him, he always gives you the impression that there is not very much wrong. He has such a nice and comfortable and comforting message. He pleases everybody And everybody speaks well of him. He is never persecuted for his preaching. (laughs) He is never criticized severely. False prophets will certainly tend to put forward an easier road of discipleship than the narrow way that Jesus gives us in his sermon. In the preaching of the false prophet, there may even be a noticeable lack of hard-edged Doctrine, lots of vague generalities and anecdotes and imprecise uh, aphorisms and ambiguous sound bites about the love of God, but precious little about the wrath of God or the judgment of God or the righteousness of God or the holiness of God, and even less about hell and the eternal destiny of the lost. Oh, and also, you may wait months and years and even decades to hear a rigorous scriptural exposition of the exceeding sinfulness of sin 
and human depravity and human inability. And when it comes to the atonement, false prophets will normally shrink back from preaching the precise contours of the cross, like penal substitution and propitiation and blood sacrifice, just to name three. What else can we say about the false prophet? False prophets relay, according to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 14, 14, they relay the deceit of their own minds. The deceit of their own minds. And they preach the visions of their own minds. Jeremiah 23, 16. And they don't speak from the mouth of the Lord because they haven't stood in the counsel of the Lord and listened to his word and paid attention to to his word, Jeremiah 23:18. The false prophets prophesy from their own heart. Ezekiel 13:2 and 13:17, they follow their own spirit. Ezekiel 13:3 and not the Lord's spirit. Although again, they may claim otherwise. False prophets may indeed perform, and I want you to hear this carefully. They may indeed perform Great signs and wonders. So as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, says Jesus in Matthew 24.11. And false prophets will obviously never announce themselves as peddlers of lies. John Stott says, on the contrary, the false prophet claims to be a teacher of the truth. The false prophet is a person who creeps in unnoticed, Jude 4. He's a person who secretly brings in destructive heresies, 2 Peter 2, verse 1. And I think this is very profound. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, listen to this, the false prophet may even be unconscious himself of what he is doing. He says the devil can give him every encouragement and at the same time keep him in the dark about his own motives. Jesus says in our verse that we need to beware that there are such people in the church. And in verse 16, he tells us how these people may be identified and recognized. Jesus says, you will recognize them how? By their fruits. Now, if the false prophet may be partially successful in disguising himself as a sheep while he's actually a wolf, sooner or later, the fruit of his life will expose him for what he really is. And here begins, in this part of the passage, the two trees imagery that we mentioned earlier. Listen, fruit that grows on trees is organically and inseparably related to the health of the very tree that it grows on. Yes? If the fruit on the tree is bad as it grows, then the tree itself must be unhealthy. If the fruit is good as it grows, then the tree must be healthy. Now, when Jesus uses this term, fruit, here, what he's getting at is the way in in which a person lives. A person's behavior and deeds. Good external fruit comes from a healthy, actually godly, 
inner life where regeneration of the spirit has actually taken place. We think immediately here of the good and healthy fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When that good fruit that is manifested in a person's life When it's manifested, it's a solid indicator in that person that there are good, living roots, actual internal spiritual health. You will recognize them by their fruits. Evil that manifests visibly in the life and behavior and deeds and actions is inevitably going to come from the evil that's going on inside. Just give it time. Sooner or later, it's going to manifest. And then Jesus says here, he asks some questions. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? What's the answer to that question? What's the answer? Of course they're not. Grapes are gathered from what? Grape vines, right? Not thorn bushes. And he also asks, are figs gathered from thistles? Again, of course not. Figs come from fig trees. What's his point? His point is that you will never get good fruit, grapes and figs, from thorn plants and thistle plants. Instead, the fruit is always going to match the root. Apples come from apple trees, right? Mangoes come from mango trees. I'm getting hungry. (laughs) True disciples of Jesus Christ will produce fruit in keeping with repentance. False prophets will not because they are diseased trees. Sooner or later they will produce bad fruit, bad deeds. Jesus says in verse 17, every healthy tree bears good fruit. Simple, right? But the diseased tree bears what? Bad fruit. And then verse 18. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Now, believers, watch that first phrase in verse 18 for a minute. Okay, It's on the third line of the screen there. A healthy tree cannot, cannot bear bad fruit. Fruit. So in other words, taken purely literally, a true disciple of Jesus, a healthy tree, cannot produce evil deeds, sinful and wicked behaviors and words. Now, I think the key here to making sense of this rather uh, totalizing statement that Jesus makes is for us to focus just for a minute on the word bear, on that verb. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. In the original Greek, and I want you to hear this, the verb bear is in the present tense, which tells us that the meaning is go on bearing or continually bear. The true disciple of Jesus, the healthy tree, cannot go on bearing bad 
fruit. John Piper is especially helpful here. He writes this. When Jesus says that a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, it does not mean that no follower of his ever sins. The natural way of thinking about the present tense of a Greek verb like bear is go on bearing. So Jesus would be saying a healthy tree cannot go on bearing bad fruit. In other words, says Piper, a tree is cut down not for bad fruit here and there. It is cut down for producing so much bad fruit that there is no evidence that the tree is good. He says, what God will require of us at the judgment is not our perfection, but sufficient fruit to show that the tree had life. In our case, divine life. Verse 19 Listen to Jesus. Listen to him well. Heed him here. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is what? Is cut down and thrown where? Into the fire. And here, friends, that phrase, cut down and thrown into the fire, is most certainly a metaphor for final judgment. Jesus uses the same sort of imagery I counted another nine times in Matthew as he describes the final judgment of the wicked. Please listen well to verse 19 and allow the words of Jesus Christ to rattle you if necessary. Heed him. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is most certainly cut down and thrown into the fire. And then in verse 20, Jesus simply repeats what he'd said at verse 16. Thus you will recognize them, the false prophets, by their fruits. Well, we've now come through this morning's passage. Jesus has confronted us, hasn't he? Jesus has confronted us with a choice between two paths, two gates, two destinations, two trees, two kinds of fruit. Which will we choose? We must choose. There is no option but to choose. Will we enter by the narrow gate on the restricting path for four score and twenty, that leads to life. Will we implement in our lives what Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount? Will we actually make this operative in our lives? Will it dominate and control and govern our lives actually, or will it not? And are we seeking and striving every day to bear good fruit that is in keeping with repentance? Do we fall on our faces every single day of our lives before the Lord and plead with Him, Lord, make me a good and healthy tree this day? Or 
Are we with the masses of people, the many who are on the wide and easy path, the popular way of life that is lax and in tune more with the spirit of the age than with Jesus Christ, heading toward destruction? Where are we? Do we have any concern for truth? Now I'm sounding like Chrysostom, aren't I? Do we have enough of a concern for truth that we feel it is crucial for us in this life to discern between false and true prophets? Are we right now bearing good fruit or are we bearing a dangerous amount of bad fruit that would suggest that the tree itself is evil, that we're not regenerate? With this sobering word of Jesus Christ ringing in our hearts and minds, I want, to, I want us to take now some silent moments in prayer and reflection to respond to Jesus. And then we will turn it over to the music team. Let's bow our heads. God, to whom shall we go but to you? You have the words of eternal life. And I pray, dear God, that your Holy Spirit would take this word from Matthew 7 that the Son of God has spoken and get under our skin with it. Make us uncomfortable and disturb us if necessary for your redemptive, good purposes. Lord, some of us are far too complacent. And I pray that you would rattle us out of our complacency and bring us to the feet of Jesus Christ and cause us to fly to him and to depend on him in a new way in our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would work this in us as we go from this place today. In the name of Jesus, amen. And now may the mighty one who has done great things and whose mercy goes on from generation to generation guide you with his counsel when life's perils confound you and protect you beneath his wings and be with you until we meet again. Amen.